If you would please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Our text tonight is Luke 9, 37 to 50. And as we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, who out of tender love towards mankind sent your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and also be made partakers of his resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord. By your Spirit, please use your word now to open our eyes to our pride and turn us from it to yourself in humble repentance. Amen. Since there's an unwritten rule somewhere that every seminary student's sermon has to reference C.S. Lewis at some point, let's get it out of the way first thing, shall we? In his classic book, Mere Christianity, Lewis writes, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice that Lewis was referring to, of course, is pride. A sense of self-satisfaction, self-importance, or superiority. And, and just in hearing the word pride, I'm sure many of you immediately picture someone. Perhaps an athlete or a coach. Not from your favorite team, of course, but probably one of their rivals. Or maybe you think of a politician or a celebrity. Or maybe even someone you know personally, a boss or a co-worker or a neighbor or a family member. But how many of us, when we hear the word pride, immediately recognize it as a word that describes ourselves? That's the point Lewis was making. We are often unconscious of this sin in ourselves, and yet we hate that sin every time we see it in others. And the reason that arrogant people rankle us so much is because their pride confronts our own. In the passage that we heard Hans read, Luke records a few different events, and the main theme running through them is that of pride versus humility. We have reached the turning point of sorts in Luke's gospel, where Jesus has completed his ministry in Galilee. He has heard directly from his disciples their confession of him as the Christ. And he's even briefly revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John in his transfiguration. And yet, for all that he has taught them so far, his disciples still have a long way to go. They still do not understand exactly what must happen for Jesus to accomplish his mission. And they still greatly overestimate their own power and role in the kingdom that he is building. Their foolish pride must be exposed. And humility must replace it and remove the harmful effects that pride has brought about in their hearts. As much as we may not want to admit it, we have a lot in common with the disciples, don't we? 
We too are often oblivious to our own overblown self-importance. And we need to be corrected so that we follow the example of our Savior who humbled himself for our sake. So as we walk through the text, let's look at what it shows us about how humility displaces pride. I've outlined three points for us, and we'll see how humility denies self-sufficiency, humility destroys status-seeking, humility dismantles sectarian solidarity. There's an outline in the back of your bulletin and a space for notes if you so desire. So let's begin with verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So let's set the scene. This is the day after the inner circle of disciples has had a literal mountaintop experience with God. They had seen a brief revelation of Jesus' divine glory, but they don't even make it back down the side of the mountain before the stark reality of life in a fallen world comes to meet them. They come upon a commotion. In Mark's gospel, he includes the important detail that some scribes had shown up, and they were arguing with the other disciples. And out of the cacophony, a desperate voice rings out, Jesus, help my son! As a hush falls over the crowd, and all eyes turn to Jesus, he gives what's probably a jarring response to those within earshot, a statement of exasperation and judgment on an unbelieving generation. As we consider this response, the question arises, who is Jesus frustrated with? Who is unbelieving and who is crooked? I think the answer begins by understanding that Jesus is echoing the words of the Lord spoken against Israel from various places in the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers 14.11, the Lord asks Moses the rhetorical question, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? He goes on to declare that none of that generation would enter the promised land. Those present in Luke 9, who had ears to hear, would also have discerned the echoes of Deuteronomy 32, where Moses declared that those who turned away from their faithful covenant Lord were a crooked and twisted generation. And this same Lord is now present with Israel in the flesh, And he's declaring that this generation was doing the same thing that their forefathers had done in the wilderness. Jesus replies to the Father, but in speaking of the generation, he uses a plural you. So the primary target of his rebuke is the onlookers. Those who constantly came after Jesus, not to receive his teaching and become his disciples, 
but to be entertained by the wonders that he worked. They were happy to come out and see the Jesus show. Maybe even they would get a free meal out of it. But in their self-sufficiency, these onlookers saw no need to heed the call to repent and believe. They were always looking for more miracles to be done. This group didn't need to see another proof. They needed a warning. And that's exactly what Jesus gives them in this exclamation. More specifically, Jesus was speaking directly to the scribes, these men who gloried in their own knowledge and their self-sufficiency, had been egging on the disciples as they attempted and failed to fulfill the Father's request. John Calvin describes this scene well in his commentary on the Gospels. The scribes, regarding this as a plausible occasion for giving annoyance, love that phrase, seized upon it eagerly and entreated the disciples that if they had any power, they would exercise it in curing the child. When the disciples proved unable, the scribes raised the shout of victory and not only ridiculed the disciples, but broke out against Christ. They manifestly endeavored to extinguish the light which was placed before their eyes. These men would never receive Christ unless they were humbled. And their self-sufficiency blinded them from seeing Jesus for who he is and receiving the salvation that he brings. This is the same today for all those who hate the Lord, who scoff at his people, who close their eyes in pride rather than bend their knee to the Lord of earth and heaven. And I'm under no pretense that may be true of some of you here tonight. You may think that you have no need of forgiveness, no need to acknowledge the law of God. You may think that the gospel is foolish. You may think that God will receive you because you've lived a good life, at least better than many other people that you know. If so, there's a rude awakening awaiting you. In your own power, you cannot even keep yourself safe in this world. And one day, you will meet the one who raised himself from the dead. My plea for you is to humble yourself. Recognize that you are insufficient to make yourself worthy of acceptance by a holy God. And repent of your self-sufficiency. Follow the call of Peter. Save yourself from this crooked generation by turning in faith to Christ Jesus. There's another group in this text present here who were also being disabused of their self-sufficiency. The disciples had been unable to cast out the demon on their own. And at least part of the rebuke that Jesus gives seems to be meant for them. Again, Mark gives more detail, and he records the disciples asking Jesus why they had failed at doing what, at the beginning of this chapter, he had sent them out to do with great success, to cast out demons. And Jesus explained that this activity could not be done apart from prayer. You see, the disciples had presumed on their past experience and on their office 
and considered themselves sufficiently able in and of themselves to defeat this demon. Earlier in Luke 9, when Jesus had sent out the disciples in pairs, he ensured that they would be constantly relying on his provision when he demanded that they not take any extra provisions for themselves. Then, they were completely dependent on God's provision for that mission. But here, they had become comfortable and did not seek the help of the Lord in this spiritual task. So they experienced defeat. J.I. Packer writes that where we are not consciously relying on God, there we shall inevitably be found relying on ourselves. And that's precisely what Jesus revealed to these disciples as their self-sufficient attitude was exposed. They were humbled by their failure, and Jesus corrected them so that seeing their need for him to carry out even the ministry that he called them to, their humility would drive away their self-reliance and bring success as his power was made perfect in their weakness. Brother elders, we must take this lesson to heart so that we do not repeat it here at Christ Church. If the very disciples commissioned by the Lord Jesus in the flesh were unable to complete their task apart from prayer and the empowering presence of the Lord, we have no hope of fulfilling our call to shepherd these people unless we are on our knees in full dependence on the Holy Spirit. The people in our care do not ultimately need our wisdom or our power or our vision. They need Jesus And our responsibility is to point them to him and lift them to his throne in prayer. May God save us from false self-reliance and grant us humility to trust him as we carry out the task to which he has called us. And, And for the rest of us, Christians, if even the men called by Jesus... And if even those officers of the church who have been set apart by the laying on of hands are unable to fulfill their vocations apart from prayer and dependence on God, it ought to be clear that we must all seek his help as we obey him in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods. How will you mortify your sin? Through prayer and humble reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ. How will you resist temptation? Through prayer and humble reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ. How will you persevere through trials? Only through prayer and humble reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ. As Jesus has told us, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So may we all see our weakness and in humility abide in him. But there's one person in this scene who recognizes his desperate need. The father of this poor boy had no pretense of self-sufficiency. Ever since his one and only son was a tiny child, 
A demon tormented the boy in ways that no one could control. In fact, Luke says that the evil spirit shattered the boy, using the same verb that he used to describe the garrison demoniac destroying the chains that had been put on him. And after years of this oppression, the father has no other hope. In fact, in Mark's fuller description, the man doesn't even seem to have much hope that even Jesus can do anything. But at this point, where else can he turn? When Jesus provokes him to believe, the Father gives the prayer that we should all repeat. I believe. Help my unbelief. And in this, Father, those of us who are parents have an example. We are not sufficient to save our kids from physical problems. We are not sufficient to save our kids from spiritual problems. We can't save our kids from sin. The education choices that we make, the extracurricular activities they're involved in, the curfews, the rules, the wisdom we impart, the inheritance we hope to leave, none of these things will save our kids. But Jesus can. And so, acknowledging our inability to meet their deepest need, we, like this father, must bring our kids to Jesus. We bring them to him in worship, surrounding them with the people of God and teaching them to seek and honor him above all. We bring them to him in catechesis, teaching them all that the Lord has done for them and how they can respond in gratitude and honor him. We bring them to him in prayer, fervently interceding for them that they would know him and love him and be made more like him. But this father is not only an example for parents, he's an example for anyone who's in need or who has a loved one who needs healing, whether spiritual, emotional, or physical. If you are in need and you have lost all other hope, I beg you, don't lose hope in Jesus. He has the power to restore every loss, to heal every pain, and to give strength to endure every hardship because he has suffered for us. He doesn't promise that he will answer every request in the way that we desire. He doesn't promise that in this world that he will heal in every way that we want. But he does promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because he didn't stay on the mountain with the safety of his closest friends in glory. Just as he did in his incarnation. So he did again after his transfiguration, laying aside his glory to enter into a fallen and broken world to suffer for the sake of restoring sinners to forgiveness and reconciling them to himself. The Father's humble faith leads directly to Jesus' victory. And through this, we see that those who bring their spiritual need to Jesus in faith even the weakest faith, even the faith that says, help my unbelief, 
will find him willing and able to meet that need and save them. Look at verse 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. By the very word of his power, the only son of God immediately healed this only son of his father. And in so doing, revealed the majesty of God. As one commentator put it, In this healing, what was visible only to the chosen three on the mountain is here visible to a great number. When we are humbled and we let go of our self-sufficiency, we will see Jesus for who he is. And we too will be astonished at the majesty of God. Unfortunately, the disciples had not fully learned the lesson So we go on to see that humility destroys status-seeking. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And be honest, how many of you hear this and your response is the same as mine? Really? These guys arguing about who's the greatest? For this group, that argument makes about as much sense as arguing about what the best way is to eat Brussels sprouts. They're all the worst in their own special way. But just like always, let's be careful in judging the disciples too much. Because in this instance, they are a mirror showing us the ugliest foolishness in our own hearts. At least, they knew better than to compare themselves to Jesus. But looking around at each other, the thoughts began. Well, I don't always say something dumb like Peter. And I'm quick to believe, unlike Thomas. I don't lose my temper like the Thunder Brothers. And I'm not always worried about money like Judas. You know what? I must be pretty great. And don't we do the exact same thing? How many times do we see it play out in our own hearts or in those around us? We can't bear to dwell on the fact that we don't measure up to the standard. So we immediately look for someone else to compare ourselves against for consolation. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And boy, isn't Northwest Arkansas the perfect breeding ground for prideful status-seeking? We are surrounded by a culture whose self-worth is tied up in having more money, a nicer house in a better neighborhood, with better stuff, having more fun, knowing more of the right people or going to the cooler places with a better job title or a more prestigious education, the more successful kids, the most attractive spouse, the most put-together family. I mean, you fill in all the things that I didn't mention. We are tempted to wear ourselves out building and increasing that status or to bask in our successes when we achieve them. When the tragic truth is 
God is not impressed with our status in the world. And honestly, neither is almost anyone else. And in the church, it's often no better, even if we put a spiritual spin on it. So many people build their security on reading the right books, attending the most church events or the right conferences, doing the most good deeds or serving the most or being seen as the most insightful or wise or kind or gifted person. And I can tell you, growing up as a pastor's kid, that church folk can be among the pettiest people in the world. And all this comparison is, is a futile attempt to ignore the fact that we know we are not what we should be. Rather than letting the holy perfection of Jesus drive them to their knees in humility, the disciples turned on each other and acted like little children. Maybe not expressed verbally, but at least internally in each of their hearts. Jesus knows exactly what is going on in the disciples' hearts. So he gives them an object lesson. Look at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Kids, can I tell you something that I sometimes do with my girls? Sometimes, if one of them isn't quite getting their way, they start to get whiny and say something like, but I wanted something different. And I might reply to them in my whiniest voice and say, and I want a kid who doesn't whine. Am I the only parent who does this? Do you think they get the point? I show them exactly what they sound like, and they realize how silly it is. And that's what Jesus is doing here. The disciples were giving each other the side eye, their nose in the air. And Jesus stuck a little kid in the middle of them as if to say, this is what you look like right now. And then he told them what the path to greatness really looks like. Instead of status-seeking, they should be sacrificially serving. He says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. This child was the opposite of great. In this culture, spending time with children under the age of 12 was seen as a waste of time. But Jesus says that receiving the child is equivalent to receiving Jesus and the Father who sent him. Far from answering the question of who is the greatest, Jesus demanded that the disciples stop looking at people as obstacles to be conquered or avoided, or objects to boost oneself on the way up. Instead, those who belong to Christ must see the inherent worth of even the most insignificant person in the world's eyes because they bear the image of God. Jesus destroyed the possibility of pride by cutting off comparison and called his disciples to humble service to those around them, expecting nothing in return. So kids... Because Jesus came and died for your sins, you must trust in him 
and he will forgive you and welcome you. And you shouldn't only be kind and friendly to those other kids who have a lot of cool toys to share or who have lots of friends. You can honor Jesus by finding those who don't have friends or those who are new or those who don't have anything to share and sharing and including and welcoming them. Jesus says that if you do that, it's the same as welcoming him and you will become great. Teenagers, your identity and your worth does not depend on the friends you have or what car you drive or don't drive or how good your clothes look or how successful you are in school or sports or art. If you belong to Jesus, your status is secure and the God of the universe loves and welcomes you. You don't have to compare yourself to anyone else. You can rest knowing that your Father in heaven loves you. And you can honor him by finding others to serve, especially those who don't have anything to offer you. And for us adults, we must put away every idol of status and rest secure in the declaration that in Christ we are forgiven and adopted into the family of the God of the universe. This has been granted to us by grace, and we must stop seeking our security in the plastic participation trophies of comparing ourselves to one another when we have been clothed in the robes of the righteousness of the King of Kings. So consider this week, if you need to stop using others as a means to get ahead and ask who it is that you can stoop low to serve. Take Jesus at his word that the path to greatness is a race to the bottom, not a race to the top. But pride does not only have an individual effect. It also poisons entire communities that swallow it whole. So while the argument about greatness was about relationships within the group, another problem arose about those outside the group. So in the last point, we see the dire need we have for humility to dismantle sectarian solidarity. Look with me at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And we could take our time to nuance and be precise about all the possible implications of applying this direction and what it could mean and what it doesn't mean, but I'm afraid that in doing so, we would explain away something that we may need to hear. Because this text speaks directly to me, and I imagine it does to some of you as well. So the only preface I will give is that this other exorcist, whoever he was, he was not teaching false doctrine. He was not performing false signs. And he was doing his work in Jesus' name. He was not a heretic, He just, at this time, was not a part of the group of disciples. 
As one commentator put it, the issue is not orthodoxy, but association. And the reason that this passage hits me square in the nose is because I am a confident, joyful Presbyterian. I love our church and our denomination and our standards and our tradition because we are right. We believe the right things and we do the right things in the right way, decently and in order. So like the disciples, I can get irritated when I see other people doing it wrong. And imagine how irritating it may be when they're successful. The whole dialogue here is reminiscent of Numbers chapter 11, where the Holy Spirit empowered 70 men to assist the covenant mediator Moses. And two men missed the commissioning ceremony, but were prophesying just like the other 68 were doing. Joshua Moses' closest disciple begged Moses to stop them, but Moses refused. And here, in Luke, we have Jesus, the greater Moses, with the beloved disciple wanting to stop others from ministry, and Jesus says, No, do not stand in the way of God's work, because this man is not opposing you. He's with you. You see, in question and answer 145, our own larger catechism teaches us that when the Lord is at work and we attempt to stop it or dismiss it, we are violating the ninth commandment. We bear false witness against our neighbor when we deny the gifts and graces of God. So brothers and sisters, Christ Church Bentonville is a wonderful church. And I love you dearly. I truly believe that we seek to honor the Lord in all that we do. But I ask you, and I ask myself, if the Lord saw fit for CCB not to grow, but another gospel preaching church to explode, how would we respond? If a church down the road where they hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints but disagree with us on secondary issues or do some things differently than we do them, if that church saw people coming to faith and growing to love the Lord more and live more to Him and die more to their sin and love their neighbor, would you rejoice? Or would you want to see it brought to an end? We confess every week our belief in the communion of the saints so when we see the gifts and graces of God at work outside our body, we should rejoice because the body of Christ is being built up. Our attitude should be that of the Apostle Paul as he writes in Philippians 1. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, the former out of selfish ambition. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Far from seeking to hinder the work of the Spirit of God, our church, and individually each one of us, 
ought to seek how we can stand side by side with all those who are ministering in the name of Christ. The disciples' pride had made them more concerned with their sectarian solidarity than with seeing people granted spiritual freedom and life. At this point, the disciples had not yet been given the commission to bind and loose. They hadn't been given the commission to determine who was qualified for ministry and who wasn't. They had only been given the task to preach and to heal. So please hear me when I say, it is not your job to police another Christian's or another church's ministry. It's the elder's job to oversee the ministry of this church and to participate in the courts of the PCA, but we have not been given authority over anyone else. In my house, we have a saying to help redirect us when we get distracted. We say, you worry about yourself. And I think that's good advice for us. We have been given a call to proclaim Christ, to live quiet lives in the vocations God has given us, and to serve each other and our neighbors with deeds of love and mercy. That is enough to keep us busy until our time on earth is done. And we should do so in humility, seeking the glory of God and the good of His kingdom, not of our own little kingdoms competing with one another. Once we realize that we are on the same team as our brothers and sisters, our pride will fade, and we can turn our focus to our own callings, leaving the Lord to judge His own servants. Now, I could stop here, and we would have had, for the most part, a fine moralistic sermon. Pride is bad, so don't be proud. Be humble instead, and you'll probably see some good results. But the truth is, you don't really need the Bible to tell you pride is bad. You don't need Jesus to know that humility is a good character trait. But you probably noticed that we skipped over the central portion of the passage earlier. The thing is, you will never truly set aside your pride without understanding the gospel. And you will never truly become humble without embracing salvation by the work of Jesus alone. Looking to verse 44, we see why Jesus was adamant that his disciples understand the end of his mission. He had told them before, but now he reminded them again. The victory he would bring was not through apparent glory, but through apparent defeat. The disciples were looking for power and prestige, and Jesus called them to humility and to service. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The disciples were prevented at this time from understanding the meaning of the mission of Jesus, and they were too fearful to ask for clarification. It is because of this that their pride kept getting in the way. Jesus literally told them to stick this message in their ears. 
He wanted them to let the word sink in, to get it into their thick skulls. The destiny of the Son of Man was to suffer on behalf of men at the hands of men. On the mountain, the Father had told the disciples to listen to his Son. And the first statement he gave the disciples after this is the theology of the cross. We also must get this straight if we want our pride to die and see it replaced with a humble faith. When you understand that your sin was so bad that God had to become man and die in order to overcome it, your self-sufficiency will wither away. When you see that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, you will see the folly in seeking security in worldly status. And only then are you free from using people for your own good and comparing yourself to them. And only then are are you free to serve them for their good and for the glory of our Lord. When you know that Jesus Christ came to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, when you recognize that there is no sin so small that it does not deserve God's wrath, and yet no sin so great that it's beyond God's forgiveness, even those sins that are different than our own, and when we understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then our sectarian solidarity melts away, and we can experience and enjoy the sweetness of the communion of the saints. The more fully we understand the gospel, the more humility displaces our pride. Brothers and sisters, when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, only then can we count our richest gains as loss and pour contempt on all our pride. Look to Jesus, and may he increase our humility and our faith.